Two pastors and Tom walk into a bar, but this is no joke. It's the start of a conversation between three friends about culture, God, beer, and more. So pull up a chair, order a pint, and let's get started. Welcome to Pint Glass Preachers. My name is Tom, the flaming liberal of the group. With me are Gabe and Josh, who by now you've probably identified as the smart ones. In hey, the hey, 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 this is my, this is my, my fantasy football team. Gabe. What, Tom? Listen, why are you, why are you doing job, my thing? I'm going to do it for you. Why are you doing my thing? Because you are drafting for fantasy football, not doing your job. You have one job, Tom, one job. You are living in an alternate reality that isn't even real, Tom. Mm-hmm. Fantasy. Can I just the name fantasy is in the activity that you are doing? Can I can I do my thing now? Just do your thing. Whatever. All right. Welcome to Pine Class Preachers. My name is Tom, the flaming liberal of the group, apparently. With me are Gabe and Josh, who by now you've probably identified as Democrats or at minimum left-leaning Republicans. Today we're going to continue talking about things you should never talk about at work: politics. Oh, and religion. In fact, we're going to talk about them not separately, but together. So when you head to the water cooler tomorrow at work, this is probably a discussion you want to stay away from. Honestly, the only thing that could make this worse is if we added sex into it. Maybe throw some drugs into the mix and we basically have a discussion cocktail that is sure to get you fired. So let's make podcasting great again. Do do offices still have water coolers? Is that a thing still? I don't know, but you know what I'm talking about, so it must be, right? I mean, I do because I'm sort of only 10 years younger than you. But what about our listener that's only in their 20s? This is true. They're 20. They could be your child, Tom. They don't <laughs> Tom, even know what Tom, an office your, is. Yeah, do your children. Yeah. You know, we really need to change that. So when you head to the shared workspace tomorrow at the hipster <laughs> coffee shop on the 40th story of a sweet office building in New York. Yes. Yes. Ah, the millennials, they ruin everything. Ah, no doubt. No doubt. Hey, well, speaking of millennials that ruin everything, let's talk about our partners. <laughs> um, <laughs> no, they certainly don't ruin everything. We are really, really, uh, I guess, blessed and grateful that we get to uh, work with our friends at the Gospel Economist, an online publication made up of a group of writers and bloggers that seek the story of Jesus Christ and is paying for our sins in our everyday lives. You can check them out at their new domain, the Gospel Economist. Dot com. No more dashes, no more medium, just the gospeleconomist.com. Go there. Their work is great. It is fun to check it out. Um, also, our podcast is hosted on their website, and so we are grateful for that. So that's two great reasons to check them out. Also, we are in the midst of a new partnership with our friends at thebeggarsblog.com. Uh, so if you want to check them out, they write some wonderful stuff, and we'll give you some more updates on our partnership with them in the days ahead. You weren't even going to plug my most recent article. Oh, Josh wrote an article on the beggars. No, blog. whatever. It's cool. It's cool. No, although I am, I am secretly referenced in it, so I'm very, very honored by that. Yeah, exactly. Because it's just like patting each other on the back, no matter what we do, Gabe. That's true. It's Bugging, really true. Proper thigh covenanting, whatever you want to call it. Oh, total Anamkara. Dude, I referenced that in a devotion for some middle schoolers. They couldn't even grasp the depth of our spiritual partnership. Mm, so beautiful so beautiful uh since tom is again not doing his job i'm gonna ask us all what are we drinking tonight 
Hey, ooh, me, pick me, Gabe, pick yes. me. Josh, what are you drinking? Oh, man, so glad you asked. Uh, you know, my father-in-law, he's been on this binge. He's a recovering alcoholic, so he doesn't drink anymore, but he loves buying me beer um, and good beer. And so he picked up a six-pack of this Elysian Space Dust IPA, ooh. and it is delicious. So got a couple of those tonight. Nice, man. That sounds delicious. It's a fun yeah. name, too. I know, right? It's got a picture of like a hop spewing out stardust or, and, space, uh, or space dust, I should that's say. That's pretty cool, which apparently we're all made of. Um, um, hashtag evolution. Not, all I'm saying is that's what I've heard. I don't. Okay. Okay. Not, all right. Okay. What, are, what are you? I'm Gabe, a man of what are you? Before, okay. before we get really bad, what are you drinking? Yeah. So I'm uh, drinking as the, the summer ends. Uh, I've probably drank this the last couple episodes. But uh, I'm drinking an Oberon Ale, an American wheat ale bottled by Bell's Brewery in Comstock, Michigan. Uh, this is a classic Michigan summer beer. And uh, as it comes to a close here in the Great White North, I'm enjoying my final sips of Oberon. Tom, what hey, are you drinking? Hey, remember that time that I was only two hours away from Michigan mm -hmm. in Fort Wayne, Indiana, and I wanted to come visit you and you weren't there? Remember that time? I, well, it hasn't happened yet, but I do remember when it uh, was. It was, it was a few weeks ago. Remember that? It was like a month oh, ago. Oh, and I was out of town. You're right. Yep. Yeah. Sorry, man. Yeah, remember that? I was in South Carolina, only a couple hours away from Chattanooga, Tennessee. Oh, that is so ironic. Oh, the irony <laughs> of the entire situation. Tom, please redeem us with what you're drinking. <laughs> well, I know I know that it's after Labor Day and we're not we shouldn't be wearing white and those types of things, nor should we be drinking margaritas because we're clearly into fall, fall liquor and beer selections. But I have decided to uh, drain the bottle of the tequila and drink margaritas one last time for this for this calendar year, if you will. Wait, nice. first of all, you're draining a bottle of tequila. Second of all, it's not the end of a calendar year. Well, you know, I just won't buy another bottle of tequila. Until so, when, exactly? Probably next spring when it gets warm out and I feel like drinking a margarita on the beach. Okay, fair enough. All right, listen. This has just been terrible banter so far. Um, so to our good listener, we're so sorry. But if you feel like you would like to, oh, I don't know, participate in what we've got going on, make sure to check out our Facebook page. You know, we post our new episodes, our B-sides, the occasional sentiment or thoughtful graphic. Um, but also, and most importantly, check out this new feature we have. Text us your questions at 612-208-6258. Many of you have done so. We have tried to respond to all the questions that have come in, either on these episodes or on a B-side. And as a matter of fact, Ben Schrank, our good friend from San Antonio, Texas, he texted a question, and we hit the last B-side by answering the first part. And I have to say that the second half of this question was so good, we'll most likely devote a future episode to it. And so let that be an inspiration to you. If you text us your question, there is a distinct possibility. One, we might read it. Two, we might answer it. Three. We might devote an entire episode to it. Hey, that was it. I was just waiting for some help. That's all. Oh, okay. Well, that was, Josh, you were in a roll. That's like the best it, you've ever done on It was here. like a point. I'd like to think of it as a poignant pause. That was really, really impressive. Okay, hey. Thank you. So, man, we want to get to our guest as soon as we can. So let's just do a quick recap of our last episode so that we can uh, take a break, and then we'll bring our guest on and really dig deep tonight. Um, so 
last episode, we started this little series of ours on uh, religion and politics, and it came to us again by a text in question. Uh, someone who noticed that uh, Tom is, of course, basically a communist and um, and that, you know, Josh and I being more reasonable are, are trying to figure it out. But but basically the, the individual said, noticed you guys are left leaning uh, and you're Christians. And that's not the most common thing in the United States, at least it, theologically conservative Christians that are left leaning is, is not the most common thing in the United States. Uh, so what's the deal with that? How's that work? And so we, we talked about that a lot and we, we ended up really honing in on abortion has been a, a really big issue. And that's where this whole, I think a lot of times this concept of Christians must be political conservative comes down oftentimes to that one issue, which of course the three of us agree is, is a very important issue. Um, but, but I'm we, not sure, uh, I'm not sure where we landed last on our last episode was it is certainly a huge issue, but it, it, it can't be the only issue when it comes to Christianity and, and politics, right? Most certainly not. But I, but but I think that's see that's where I think most Christians land, and I fear that in our last episode we ended up spending the last twenty minutes argument, which would lend credence to the fact that it's the only issue when it comes to Christianity, and that's where where I would I would disagree. Well, and see, here's what I would say though. I I think if if there are actual politicians that would actually do something about that issue. To me, it makes perfect sense for that to be the only issue. If it is what we say it is, then it, then of course that makes sense for it to be the only issue. I think I'm just skeptical that politicians actually care at all and they're just buying evangelical votes. And so that way I'm going to look at my politics more broadly because I'm just not going to do it because they say they're going to do something when they're not doing anything. So I'm going to look at people who are actually doing things for people that actually matter. I just think yeah, it well, minimize. I think it minimizes. I mean, certainly the killing of babies unborn babies is awful but i think it's such a short-term view that because with abortion we can see the immediate the immediate impact that there's a life taken away but but to take away snap benefits or or these other uh benefits that our government gives it just kills somebody in the long run you know when they're five years old instead of unborn but we somehow don't have a problem with that and you know as as Christians, or we don't care that we send them to war and kill them when they're 18. You know, like, that's the thing. We're talking about a loss of life no matter what. And so to narrow it down again to one issue, I, I just, I don't think is right as a Christian. And there you have it. But I think, I think part of it though, Tom, is the, the quantity, right? So you can't even, like, it's not even comparable, the, the loss of life to abortion, to what we've lost in war, to, the the benefits of people i mean like like if it's a life is a life the number of lives lost that way is so disproportionately huge in abortion that it's like dude if there were a politician that was actually going to do something about it i'd actually vote for that guy on that one issue or gal on that one issue but i just don't think that person exists which i think speaks to really the weakness of our political system for a self-proclaimed cynic like myself I don't think we have any politicians who one are willing to to actually do and three will ever speak to specific issues with any kind of clarity or authority. You know what I mean? It's all um, excuse it's me. All pandering. Excuse me. Ex I know of a man who promised to build a wall. 
Listen, that wall will be built, and it's going to be around the Mar-a-Lago Hotel in Florida to protect it from the floodwaters of Hurricane Irma. Man, that that just took sort of a oddly dark turn. And uh, on that note, I think it's time we take a break and bring our guest on. Indeed. Indubitably. Break time. Well, hey, everyone. Welcome back from break. We are here uh, with a very special guest this evening, uh, Dr. Heath Carter. He is a professor at Valparaiso University in Valparaiso, Indiana. Is it uh, he Valparaiso is, or Valparaiso? It's probably a zoo, I think. I, think I don't know why I was saying it so there, soft. Yeah. Sorry, yeah. everyone. Okay. But at any rate, uh, he's a graduate of Georgetown University, of the University of Chicago, and received his PhD uh, from the University of Notre Dame. Or is it Notre Dame University? University of Notre Dame, baby. Oh, there it is. Go Irish. Uh, where he studied under Mark Knoll, uh, my second favorite American historian, uh, only behind Dr. Heath Carter. Um, <laughs> and he, uh, he's the author of uh, Union Made, uh, which has a great subtitle. And uh, the editor of of some of, of of a couple other books, and has a book coming out this year too, which we're going to let him uh, promo in a little bit. Uh, but but we want to get to know him a little bit more. And on top of all of that, uh, I got to speak alongside him at a camp this summer, and uh, he is the greatest person I've ever spoken alongside of in my entire life. Debatable, present Debatable. company included. <laughs> uh, no, ah, what? <laughs> but uh, but Dr. Carter, welcome to the show. Hey, glad to be here. Awesome, man. So we like to ask our guests, uh, what what are you drinking tonight? Got a Two Brothers Pinball Juicy Hot Pale Ale. Delicious, good stuff. Nice. Two Brothers beer. I highly recommend. Now they're from uh, what the West Side of Chicago. West Side of Chicago, you got it. Yeah, Warrenville, <laughs> and then they've got their roundhouse down the Southwest suburbs. Definitely recommend. Highly check it out. Oh, the Southwest suburbs. What are we talking like, Schaumburg? You know, no, that's Northwest, man. It's uh, really? Southwest. It's like, yeah, yeah. I can't remember exactly where the roundhouse is, but you can't miss it. It's like an old train building that they converted into a. It's like it's got everything in there. It's got like a brew pub. Um, they do a lot of brewing there, but they also have like a coffee shop in there. It's a, it's a huge old like train roundhouse that they've uh, renovated and turned into a pretty cool space. Interesting. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. All right, Heath, man. So I want to start us off with something that when uh, you know I, I made when I when I was so fortunate to speak alongside you, uh, that you shared a, a fact with us that I was just blown away by, and it was this: if uh, let's say two hundred Christians were were sitting in a room right now. Uh, back during the abolitionist movement, or, or perhaps during the beginning of the abolitionist movement, uh, how many of them would have been abolitionists of slavery, would have been opposed slavery? 200 Christians are sitting in a room during the time of that movement. How many of them would have been abolitionists? Well, you know the answer to that, Gabe, but I, I'm curious, what do the other guys think? What, 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 would, you, uh, what would you guess? 
percentage or actual number numbers of uh, out of the two hundred? Uh, either way, I can I can move back and forth between those pretty quickly. So yeah, <laughs> I'm, gonna say, give me a... I'm gonna say fifteen percent or less would be actual abolitionists. All right, Tom, any any guess? I have none at this moment. Yeah, one percent. That's the right answer. Oh. So so roughly two. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I I think that's an important fact. I think um, one of the things that can be problematic. I mean, I, I'm I I study the history of American Christianity. I think it's really important for the churches today, and and you know, I think understandably we can be a little fuzzy about our history. So we have this sense that. Oh, you know, yeah, a lot of Christians supported slavery, but, you know, a lot of Christians really, I mean, abolition just grew out of the churches. Now, both of those statements are true, but if you start to drill down on the numbers, it's no contest. Um, Mm. It's no question that Christianity was a powerful bulwark of the American slave system and that the folks, the very, very small number of Christians who support abolition um, were widely regarded by mainstream Orthodox believers as heretics who were um, secularists and deeply threatening to the faith um, because they were throwing out the Bible. That was the that was the core of the of the debate. Was that hey, you know, it, Northern seminary professors and Southern seminary professors agreed that um, on the slave question, there was no question that the slaveholders had the Bible on their side. That is so interesting because it seems like not much has changed from, oh, I don't know, the late mid to late 1800s and the early 2000s where the the leveraging scripture as sort of, you know, the foundation of argumentation or Mm -hmm. systems of belief, like you would think that that we have progressed. I mean, Americans were sort of obsessed with the idea of, of progression and growing from our mistakes and you know, elitism from generation to generation. And yet that argument sounds terribly familiar today with at least American Christians that would say, well, we have the Bible on our side and we'll use scripture to justify just about everything. Yeah. 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 And the idea that if we, if our position on this particular issue changes, you know, the whole thing goes away. And as it turns out, um, you know, as you know, uh, the abolitionists win the day, in a manner of, you know, the, slavery is abolished. Now it, it's a very, very complicated story as to whether what, you know, what happened next was not exactly a, a good thing. It was really, really in many ways worse than slavery, people would argue. Um, but I mean, the idea that, you know, the, the, if we, if we move away on this particular issue, things are going to fall apart. That doesn't actually turn out to be the case. In fact, many of those abolitionists in the North would remain faithful Christians and their descendants who remain faithful Christians. And, and so, I mean, the, you know, that doesn't. So let, let me ask this but, though, Heath, like, I, but, I, I'll just say this, like, like I have a hard time with this. And, and I think that's why I remembered you, you sharing this stat is, is like, you know, in one sense as a Christian, like I, I of course want to identify with the positive aspects of the history of our faith. And I, of course, want to distance myself from some of the negative aspects of the history of our faith, um, you know, which is is probably not good. I probably need to just come to terms with some things. But y- you had mentioned early on, though, that like, yes, two or one percent, excuse me, of, of Christians would have been abolitionists. But obviously, slaves were freed, like abolition happened. And this historically is a, a predominantly Christian country in, in terms of the religious 
the main religion here. And, and so I'm assuming, was there at some point a turning point in the, the Christian view of abolitionism? If that's the word. Um, yeah, I mean, the, the shift, the, the terms of the debate shift, right? I mean, after the Civil War, emancipation happens, the slaves are freed. There's kind of no putting that cat back in the bag, so to speak. But, I mean, I was just today in class here at, at Valpo teaching the end of Reconstruction. And the reality is that within 12 years, I mean, right after the Civil War, so many amazing things happen, right? I mean, the 13th, 14th, Amendment, uh, 15th Amendments are passed that offer not only abolish slavery, but offer full human rights and due process and voting rights to black men in particular. Um, and, you know, there's this moment of like, what might happen? And within 12 years, um, the nation is, is sewed back together. Reconstruction comes to an end on the basis of white supremacy. Northern armies withdraw from the South and, and similarly within the churches, um, there's a way in which, uh, the way forward that was taken, not, it wasn't the only way forward, but the way forward that was taken for, both the nation and the churches was let's let's just uh, let bygones be bygones. Let's not worry too much about these freed people, and uh, let's resort very quickly to a kind of white supremacist wow. position. Um, I mean, that's that's why we get a hundred years of uh, racial oppression under Jim Crow. You know, right after yeah. after the Civil War. Let yeah. me pose an ambiguous question to you then. Because in my context, we are deeply embedded in conversations exactly like this, coming to grips with white supremacy and privilege and power and how to really not only come to grips with it, but repent of it and figure out, I mean, if there's even a way forward. And speaking as a, as a white Protestant pastor, I mean, this is a, a, a difficult task to say the least. Yeah. And so when I hear the words white, or I mean, not white, oh boy, oh boy. When I hear the words American Christianity together, I cringe. And I'm I'm immediately ashamed of that definition of who I am because I am an American, I'm a Christian. So therefore, I am an American Christian. Yet at the same time, looking back at some of the baggage that you just referenced mm-hmm. and countless decades and and you know, generations of additional baggage lumped on top of that. Is it possible to divorce myself or certain aspects of American Christianity from that type of tragic history? Or are we all just victims of context? You know, um, is it possible to, to, avoid some of the stigma that's attached with this term American Christianity. Cause like when, and I guess to preface it, when I, when I, when I think of it, I think of Southern evangelicalism. I think of uh, the Baptist movement. I think, I think of a lot of, you know, the first and second great awakenings, you know, those types of things. And I wouldn't necessarily associate myself or even Lutheranism with that. But at the same time, I know that we were culpable in many, many ways. Yeah. Well, I would, one way I would put it maybe is that, uh, Christian America, the project of Christian America, which was a, a very a project that many American Christians were pretty obsessed with, and some still are. I think that's a pretty probably deeply problematic project. It always has been a deeply problematic project, and so I certainly, as a believer, want to uh, you know divorce myself from that project of kind of uh, Christian America has meant in this country. Um, 
I I think, you know, I guess I would say that when I hear you say, can I divorce myself from American Christianity? I mean, I, I think that we are part of a story that is deeply troubling and tragic and problematic in many ways. And um, and yet I, I don't know that we want to be like, well, let me let me sub segment off and exist with these pure and holy people over here. I think I think we are part of that story. And I think uh, we have work to do. You, you mentioned at the beginning of your comment of, of, of repentance. And I think that's the work that that in part we need to be doing, which means that we are in part acknowledging that we're we're in fully enmeshed in this longer in this longer narrative. Um, so, and I think that's part of what we need to be doing. Let me throw a follow up your way then. Um, okay. I, I guess as a as a secondary question, is it possible to I guess jump past exactly what you just said and create some type of associative identity with the pre-Christian America church? Um in a way of like, yes, acknowledge and repent of 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 the the tragic postures and behaviors that that the church in America, Protestant Church in America, took uh, for the last mm -hmm. four hundred years. But is it possible as an American Christian to be more closely identifiable with the church pre America? Yeah. At all. Um. That's a good question. I. I don't know that you're going to, I mean, I don't know that it works that way. I mean, my sense as a historian is that, you know, go, yeah, sure. Fine. Go back to the 1600s or the 1500s. And, you know, I mean, you know, there's a lot of bad stuff going on, you know, and, and I don't know that there, you're going to find that there's this moment you can go back to. And if we could just get back to there, it all be good. Yeah. Well, uh, and, I, and I think that hits at the heart of it because uh, at least in modern and I mean, Gabe, correct me if I'm wrong, but in, in, at least in a lot of modern church planting circles, there's been a, a recent impetus to get back to like the Acts church. You know what I mean? If we could just break bread and pray daily together, then like we are being the church and Acts, you know, Acts 2 is the epitome of what it means to be a Christian. Yep. Yeah. But what I'm thinking more of is like, and, and this maybe perhaps goes back to your initial question, Gabe, is like, if... I know we can't just simply pick and choose and identify to what makes us feel most comfortable or what we would like to 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 emphasize in our own context or ministries or whatever. But you know, I, I like to think of myself, perhaps naively, as a more well-rounded theologian and practitioner of the Christian faith. You know, from gleaning things from Clement of Alexandria to St. Teresa of Avila, and even to those who were pastoring just 50, 60 years ago. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And not necessarily pigeonhole myself into this last century of American Christianity, yet at the same time, I, I know I fall victim to that. And so yeah. instead of picking a, a singular timeline or time frame to say, this is what the ideal of Christianity was, mm -hmm. you know, 16th century, Lutheran right. Reformation, whatever. Is it possible to overcome a lot of this baggage by gleaning from different periods and self-identify in that way? Yeah, I think I think I mean I I'm certainly a person who is uh, pretty eclectic and drawing on you know kind of the great tradition of of Christianity, not just in the United States but around the world. Um, and I think that, I think that's that's one of the beautiful things about Christianity, you know, as a as a long-standing world religion, is that we we do have incredible resources to draw upon. And I think we use them, we should be using them to engage in the messy work of 
repair, repentance, where we're at in the time that we live around with the neighbors that, that we find ourselves living alongside. And I think that's, if we're really pushing into that hard work that I think is before us, yeah, then we should draw on those resources. Um, I don't think we should draw on those resources to try to like start over. I think that's, that's not going to move us forward. I think we've got to like push into the work of the, you know, redeeming the story in which we, we find ourselves in some way. So, so let me ask you a question. He, Cause like we, you know, Josh is actually, uh, y- you don't know this and neither do our listeners, but he's, uh, he's tapping into a heated conversation he and I had and, and Tom had in uh, our last recording that we didn't actually end up recording, but, um, as we were prepping for our last one, uh, in which I, I kind of made this case and, I, I guess I'd like you to tell me why I'm wrong sure. because I, I, I like to more do than Josh. Yeah, uh, sure. So, uh, <laughs> <laughs> Oh, uh, how far I've fallen in your eyes. It's true, it's true. <laughs> okay. So here's the deal. Um, so my family in particular, right? So I, I'm a white Protestant minister. Okay. But my family in particular, uh, man, they, they immigrated here in like 1890, uh, from Switzerland and Germany. Uh, and they started cheese factories in northern Wisconsin. Mm-hmm. So the amount of you know impact that they had on any racial prejudice in the United States mm-hmm. is like none. And and so sometimes when I'm told that I'm supposed to feel culpable for the sins of white Americans, I'm kind of like, like I literally had nothing to do with that. Mm-hmm. And, and Josh is like, no, Gabe, you're a horrible racist, and you need to repent. But I. <laughs> Yeah, so I did, I did say that. I did. You did. You did. And so, like, do I? Because because of that, I mean, like, like my actual ancestry literally I, it couldn't be further from having anything to do with the the problems in this particular country. Now, were they perfect yeah. back in Germany? I have no idea. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think that that is a, an excellent and important question, and I would say that it's a lot more complicated than well, my my family has nothing to do with this. I don't know all the details of your family history, but I wonder, did anyone in your family receive social security benefits starting in 19, in the 1930s? Have it, did anyone in your family benefit from the GI bill? These are two massive federal programs that were um, fueled the rise of a white middle class in the mid 20th century that were almost completely unavailable to black Americans. They were colorblind legislation, both social security act of 1935 and the GI bill. Um, and yet what we know is that black people were intentionally um, excluded from an, an ability to take hold of them. And what that meant was that while families like yours who came here with nothing and, um, you know, made their way working hard and whatnot, um, many times what's left out of those stories is, hey, we did get Social Security. Hey, we, my grandson did go to college on the GI Bill, whatnot. And, and what we know is that those the, the new deal uh, programs and the gi bill in particular which came after the war nothing was more important to the rise of a vast the largest middle class this country's ever seen um did your family uh, benefit from those i don't know right uh, but, well and let's let's oh, say they did. music to my ears <laughs> well actually music yeah, to I, my I was, ears i was having i think that's i was having breakfast with 
with a friend of mine who's African-American, and we were having this discussion around um, some of the racial tensions that were happening. And and he asked me the question, he said, if you could draw a, draw a line back to your ancestors that absolutely that they profited off of off of slavery off of you know african americans and and your wealth is is derived from that if you could go back and you could actually pinpoint and find the families that you that your ancestors profited off of what would you do well that is happening too i mean like georgetown university where i went to college they they have identified the descendants of a major sale of slaves that happened in the uh, early 19th century and mm. are trying to figure out that very question. What do we do? We know who these people are. We know how much we know this university wouldn't be around if we hadn't profited off the sale of their ancestors. What do we owe them? I mean, that's a deep, important, and it seems to me like Absolutely. central question. Yeah. Um, and that's so specific, but at the same time, Tom, we could look back and, and so like Gabe, and we don't need to rehash our entire argument from last, you know, pre B side recording, but so let's look back at those same ancestors who were in Germany and Switzerland. Okay. And let's even go back another 150, 200 years prior to that. I mean, it, it is, it is beyond historical doubt that or I don't even know what I'm just saying right now. It is reality that we would all agree that chattel slavery was around and it originated from the European slave trade for over 400 years ago. And so it's, it's a fair argument to make that yes, maybe your direct ancestors, maybe even my direct ancestors had no like tangible benefit in our eyes or traceable benefit, uh, you know, with a line on a piece of paper, but at the same time, Europe in general benefited off of the backs of the slave trade. And so therefore there is an inherent privilege and inherent opportunities that existed that, that wouldn't be the case for people of color. And so that, I mean, like, I don't think we need to get bogged down in this, uh, in this particular episode, but I do think it does speak to the formation of American Christianity, in particular, the relationship between American Christianity and politics over the last at least couple hundred years in this country. I, I would just add one other thing and to Gabe's question, which is, Gabe, I think you benefit right now from being white. Yeah, no, that's I true. I mean, come to Valpo. And, you know, a couple of years ago, we had a student who was stopped by the police and arrested for really no good reason, not by the city police, but by the sheriff's department. And I know for a fact, if I had been in that car, I wouldn't have been, I wouldn't have been arrested. Yeah, no, there's no doubt about that. And that's like, I'm not denying white privilege. I think, I think that's a real thing. And, and you know, like, did, have I been given ridiculous opportunities in this country that, that other folks have not been able to have access to? Yes, absolutely. But, but in the sense that, like, do, do I have to repent of my ancestors' racism when, like, they... I mean, they may have been racist. I don't well, know. That's but they, not they, what, I don't think that's what I'm talking about, at least. I don't think well, like, and, that, we, and I'm not accusing that. I'm just wondering, should I? Yeah. Like, no, I, I think that like the work of repentance is not like sitting in a room with a bunch of other like wealthy middle class white people repenting for the sins of your ancestors. It's saying like, look at the world in which we live. Look at the country in which we live. Look at Ann Arbor, Michigan. Look at wherever and Chattanooga, Tennessee, Valparaiso, Indiana. And um, things are not as they ought to be. 
Yep. And are you going to be a person who yes. indulges in the the world as it is and knowing that it is not as it ought to be, you could indulge in it as it is. That's not repentance. Repentance is the work of like working, leaning into putting your shoulder into like the, the world as God wants it to be. And that's, that's what's more interesting. Not like sitting around and like counting up how many of our ancestors were, you know, whatever doing what, whatnot in the slave trade. That's my view. Dude. I'm going to put my stamp of approval on that, and I wish you were here last Wednesday at about 10 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. <laughs> That's what I wish would No, happen. Josh, you are confusing the arguments because Heath is absolutely correct to acknowledge what has happened and then to move forward and try to live as a Christian and try to live with mercy and with justice and all of this. But your argument last week was that we should apologize personally because we're Germans, so we should apologize for the Holocaust. Not apologize. apologize. Yes. No. I make a distinction. No, and I think, though, I, I well, I'll agree with you, Josh. I wish Heath was here last week, too, because he said it way better than what you said ever. Well, so, of course he um, did. He's a doctor. <laughs> <laughs> of course he did. <laughs> so, I think that's a beautiful thing, Heath. The way the way you put that um, is is this idea of the work of repentance is not a bunch of us sitting around on microphones over Skype, uh, you know, saying we're sorry for the sins of our ancestors, but it's saying the world is not what it ought to be. It's not uh, the we're, we're not living in the eschaton right now. We're not living in the Garden of Eden, but but we want to live towards the future that God's creating. We want to live towards the reconciliation that God has promised us. And, and so we want to work towards that world. And I, and I think that's a beautiful image. Um, and so if I can, I think that that does bring us back to this idea of the, the Christian and politics. Like, like, so, so race is a facet of that, no doubt. Um, another facet of that though, that, that I think is, um, of particular interest, I know at least uh, to, to you, Heath, is, is this idea, I, I mean, I guess the poor is maybe too broad a term, but, but your, your dissertation, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, but, but is really on kind of the, the labor movement and its relation to social Christianity. Is that accurate? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And so that, yeah. that really is about working class poor and, and their relationship uh, to the gospel. And, and I just wonder if, um, how do I put it? Uh, if, if you could speak to that in in sort of a, so I mean your dissertation is 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 on the the rise of social Christianity among the working class, um, and and I've I started your book um, and uh, and I I sent you a gif of the newsies. Um, <laughs> That's awesome. um, but uh, but uh, it, you know so but in your book though it, it seems like the 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 focus of your dissertation is um, this idea that that really the the joining of the the gospel or of social Christianity with uh, the labor movements uh, really didn't arise from the great theologians, didn't really arise from the preachers and the leaders of the church, but arose from within the actual laborers themselves. Yeah, yeah. How did they begin to do that, and and what do we what do we learn from that? Yeah, I mean, so the book is really looking at an earlier moment in both American history and the history of American Christianity, looking at this moment right after the civil war, when, you know, you get the kind of rise of, uh, industry mass, um, you know, factories and mass production and whatnot. And, uh, and you get the rise of, of incredibly, incredible wealth. Uh, I mean, the, the United States is producing unprecedented wealth 
in those late 19th, early 20th century decades. And uh, the question then and the question now is, um, what is just in terms of uh, a distribution of that wealth, in terms of the way that, it, that, it, that the, creation, the creation is divvied up, so to speak? Um, and uh, the, yeah, the story I tell in the book is really a story about how working people challenged church leaders' sense of what the, the just way forward was. And, and in many cases, Protestant church leaders in particular were really kind of marching in lockstep with um, big business and, and corporate leaders and workers came to them and said, hey, the Jesus I know and love was a carpenter. Um, he said that, very pretty clearly in the Gospels that the laborer is worthy of his hire. How is it that you always side with my boss? I don't get it. Um, and, so what, and so, yeah, yeah, go ahead, Josh. Yeah. So, so what has or hasn't changed in your opinion since, I mean, because you referenced the, yeah. the late 19th and early 20th century decades. So yeah. what has or hasn't changed then as we look at the, you know, early 21st century decades? No, no, wait, yeah. before, before you get there, what ended up happening then? Why did, because we played this game yeah. at the beginning of our last episode where I said, you know, I'm going to give you a word and you tell me whether it's Republican or Democrat. And so the word is yeah. Christian. Mm -hmm. And of course, we, Republican, because you can't be Democrat and Christian at the same time, right? Yeah. And so, yeah. so right here, you're pointing to the fact of, of Christians of the Christian leadership siding with big business, which is is kind of where we're at right now. Republicans are more big business, and Republicans kind of own own Christianity right now. Mm -hmm. So what 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 kept us on that line? Yeah. Well, well, so I think there's a big change that happens in between. I mean, my the workers that I write about, they are successful. They they um, basically they threaten to leave the churches. They just say, look, we're gonna we're out of here. If you guys aren't going to preach the real gospel of Jesus Christ, Jesus will be with us outside the church. Um, the church leaders didn't like to hear that. They didn't like the idea of losing their uh, cultural influence and authority. And it was no coincidence uh, that in the first decades of the 20th century, denomination after denomination came around and said, hey, maybe actually there is something to these, this whole trade union idea. Um, that would build. And by the 1930s, um, most Protestant denominations, certainly the Catholic Church, is fully committed to the idea that um, Christianity and economic equality are fully compatible. In fact, um, you know, the Roosevelt administration pitches the New Deal as this is just the Sermon on the Mount. This is Christianity in practical form. Um, but there are a lot of folks in industry and 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 all over the country who really don't like the New Deal. They don't like the idea of um, the, the theological underpinnings of it. And they partner with ministers from across the country to lead a grassroots movement um, against it and, and in favor of what we would call like neoliberal or, or uh, um, free market kind of economics. And and that movement um, struggles to gain ground in the 1940s and 50s when you have kind of mass faith-infused Christian, deeply Christian labor and civil rights movements on the move. But that civil rights movement, man, it, it, it instigated a huge backlash. And by the 1960s, the grassroots revolt against economic democracy merges with the grassroots revolt against civil rights. And what do you get? The most powerful 
political movement of the last generation, which insisted that God ordained free enterprise as the way for um, us to structure our economic life. So um, we live in this moment where, yeah, for the last generation, it's been the common sense that, well, of course, if you're a Christian, you don't, you're a Republican, you don't support labor, da, 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 da. 50, 60, 70 years ago, the common sense was very, very different. Um, and my book is really looking at how did we get to that earlier common sense? And then, you know, other folks have written about how did we get here? So let me ask this then, Heath, because I, I think, you know, we have, there are, of course, and, and right, I, I guess the, the road to hell is paved with good intentions, right? But yeah. uh, but there are, are folks, Christian folks who have really good intentions that are, that are conservative in, 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 in every sense of the word, right? Yeah. And, um, and they really believe that biblically that like, Hey, this like free market is great because what it does is it empowers the individual, it uh, gives the individual, uh, work and, and possibility and gainful employment. Mm -hmm. And, and so that's, that's what we want to do. And so the more we free the market, the more we empower people, uh, to, to do whatever it is that God's created them to do. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I guess I would say is what's, there doesn't seem to be anything wrong with that. If well, I'm I think, I think the thing that, yeah, I mean, I, I think it's important, and as a historian, part of my responsibility is to take people seriously and to treat them as I would want to be treated. Um, you know, there were a lot of really sincere Christians who were slaveholders and yeah. who believed in slavery. And, and I think what you'll find is there are a lot of sincere Christians that support all sorts of different kinds of political movements, economic movements, and they do so not cynically, not um, for you know, what they perceive to be their own gain, but because they really believe it's the right thing. Um, I mean, I think the facts bear out that, you that, know, we've, that, we've, that's yeah, the supposition there though, is that you have, is that you have an individual who is looking closely at different models of economic growth of, of you, you take your, your policy agenda. The vast, I be, it is my belief that the vast majority of people, Republican or Democrat, simply line up and say, I'm a Democrat or I'm a Republican, and this is what my party tells me is, is good or bad. Mm -hmm. And so That's true. I, I, I just don't see a lot of thoughtfulness, I guess. And maybe yeah. that's way too cynical. Well, I think, I think there is, I mean, we still have civic dialogue debate, whatnot, but I think you're right that there are a lot of people who are like not focused on the intellectual underpinnings of every given political economic issue. Maybe I mean, you could maybe you can answer me this because I right now we we say that bipartisan or I'm sorry partisanship is at its absolute height. Yeah. But I just saw a quote uh, from from a a French politician back in the revolutionary era that said, "Look, the reason we kind of got on board with America and things like that is is that in order to have great public discourse, you have to disagree." Yeah. And you have to have these great debates and fights about things. Have we seen that? I mean, would you agree with that? And do you see yeah. that in the same, in the same I mean, vein I, of politics? I think, I don't know. I mean, I think or, I'm sorry, we've, had, we've had, we've had bitter partisanship in the past. Um, and I don't know that this is like even the worst of, of what we've seen. I mean, I think money in politics is, is the kind of money that we see in politics today is, is more of a, an innovation than I think the, but I want to just go back well, to the 24 hour yeah. news cycle and social media just magnify what has always been. 
Yeah, I mean, yeah, cable news and whatnot. I mean, we, you know, penny presses and, and newspapers back in the late 19th century were pretty vicious and pretty regular and spreading all sorts of uh, fake news, as they call it these days, uh, on, on the regular. Right. Um, I mean, I think that one point, just to go back to Gabe's question for a second about the free market, is here's, here's the thing, right? I mean, for the last, since at least the 1980s, we've, we've, been working with this model of uh, pro corporate, pro business, um, you know, low tax regime kind of thing. And uh, what we know is that inequality, where we are at peak inequality right now. If you want to know, I mean, we we've never we haven't been more unequal in any of our lifetimes and any of our parents' lifetimes. The last time we were this unequal was 1928. From an economic standpoint. Yeah, from a from an economic standpoint, in terms of uh, the gap between the wealthy and poor yeah. and the the shrinking middle class. So, in th- in that sense, I, I I say to all my well-intentioned free market brothers and, and sisters in Christ, I get it. I understand that you feel this way very deeply and earnestly. And I think empirically, the proof is in the pudding, and the pudding doesn't taste very good right now. It's it's not good. Gotcha. All right, all right. There you go. You heard it here first. From so, Dr. Heath Carter, spitting fire. <laughs> so maybe, maybe before we wrap up here, could you kind of give us a wrap up of where you see the intersection of politics and religion moving forward? Hmm. Wow, I think that's a that's a toughie. Um, I mean, I I to be honest, I think that that there's reasons. You know, we historians are not in the business of making too many predictions, um, so I'll hedge this a little bit. But to say that, um, you know, I'm on Twitter, and and I think if you look on Twitter, some days it's it's easy to be real discouraged about the possibilities for fruitful movement forward. Um, just the way that Christians talk to one another, Christians of different political outlooks talk to one another on Twitter, I find deeply dispiriting. Um, you know, I see us not able to hold together and sustain uh, our love for one another in the midst of deep disagreement. Um, on the other hand, I think there have been good developments, and even in the unsettledness of our time, um, on, you know, to circle back to one of our big kind of conversation topics on race, I mean, I, I'm actually encouraged that we've seen in recent years so much upheaval around race, because I think it's it's the festering decay that has actually been there all along coming to the surface in a way that might possibly allow for new things and i i think i've been encouraged to see i think that there are some new things happening in the churches around race in particular um you know people my parents age who are um convinced maybe for the first time in their lives like hey maybe we actually aren't living in a post-racial society maybe actually there are some ways that we need to like really continue to work on uh, repentance for our original sin. And so, I mean, I expect, I think we're living in a very unpredictable moment, but um, yeah, there's, there are reasons for hope even in the midst of uh, kind of the, the headlines that would give indication otherwise. Well, and so in that vein, and, and this will be our last question. And then, uh, I want to give you a chance to just share a little bit about uh, where folks can connect with you online and if they can get access to your books and X, Y, and Z. But, uh, but before we get there, just uh, in that same vein, um, I remember I, I asked you this question before, but I'd, I'd love for our good listeners to, to hear your answer to it. Um, 
as as a historian of uh, really focusing in on American Christianity, like quite frankly, we've skimmed the surface in some of the the darkness that exists in American Christianity and some of the the uh, mm-hmm. grotesqueness of of our history. If we're just honest with ourselves, and and so and yet. Uh, you would still call yourself a Christian, and yeah. uh, and you're still a practicing Christian. And um, why? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> nice. Well, yeah, that's a great question. I, I, Gabe, you and I have talked a little bit about this. I mean, I think that um, I I've been deeply formed as a believer by my own study of history, and it's certainly been a really influential um, on my faith and the the different teachers and mentors I've worked with along the way. Um, one of the things that is true and one of the things that I find kind of spiritually edifying about being a historian is that, yeah, I mean, when you dive into the history, there's all sorts of gross, tragic terribleness. Um, but, uh, I also meet along the way, lots of folks that do inspire me and that do remind me that, um, people can be faithful even in the midst of like a church that's not faithful or a city that's not faithful. Like, there are people that have been deeply faithful and um, who have paid like a deep price for their faithfulness. Um, and I don't know. I mean, reading, reading about them, reading their work. I mean, I, I think uh, often of Mark Knoll, my my graduate advisor's book on the history of Christianity in the United States and Canada, where he talks about how if you want to find God in the history of Christianity in the United States, don't look to the big headlines, don't look to the big stories, look to the shadows, look to the slaves who found in the Bible that was handed them for the purposes of their own oppression, a uh, God who wanted their liberation. Look to the missionaries who didn't abandon the Cherokee when uh, the federal army showed up to move them to the West, but said, no, these are our, these are our brothers and sisters and we're, we will walk with them. Um, I mean, I think, I think you'll find along the way, I've found along the way people that, um, help me to be faithful and challenge me to be faithful. Yesterday I was assigning Dorothy Day um, in my class and, and a little short excerpt from her book, Loaves and Fishes, where she says uh, on the lines of like, at least we shouldn't be comfortable um, on, you know, because of the exploitation of others. And she, she's encouraging voluntary poverty. And I'm like, oh my gosh, I have so much that I need to be working on in my own life, you know? Um, yeah. yeah. So I don't know. It's it's a messy business, but um, I guess beyond just the fact that I believe uh, and I I I, I find that compelling, I, I do also find in history uh, encouragement, and affirmation for my faith. That's good, man. That's uh, inspiring to hear, and at least for me. Um, and uh, oh, I'm going to usurp your best friendness with one. Dr. I knew you were going to. Very I quickly. knew you were going. <laughs> it's only a matter of time. Only a matter of time. I told you he's awesome. Uh, all right, Heath, before we let you go, man, uh, we would love to just give you an opportunity to uh, to share with our good listeners, um, namely Tom's mom, uh, where uh, <laughs> they can uh, they can find you online, what books you've written, edited, have coming out, anything like that. Uh, man, we, we'd love yeah. for folks to, to hear from you more because we think you have a lot of great stuff to say. Yeah. Uh, easy way to connect with me is on Twitter. I, I'm on there a good bit. Uh, my handle on there is just Heath W. Carter, and, and I'm always uh, happy to hear from people that way. They can also shoot me an email. Uh, easy to find my email on the Valpo website, university website. Um, 
Yeah, I've got I've got a few books out already. Uh, Union Made, which we talked about, Working People and the Rise of Social Christianity in Chicago. Uh, a book called The Pew and the Picket Line, Christianity in the American Working Class. That's an edited volume, which has kind of essays that look at uh, these questions of economic justice and faith uh, in a lot of different contexts across the nation and across time. Uh, most recently uh, came out with an edited volume called Turning Points in the History of American Evangelicalism. It's kind of a book in honor of Mark Knoll, uh, dedicated to him and uh, kind of riffing on his, his important book, Turning Points in, in Christianity. That, that book, uh, Turning Points in the History of American Evangelicalism, just looks at a lot of key moments, and it's really targeted for a lay audience, church people and Sunday school classes and whatnot that might be interested in diving in a little bit deeper into the church's history. Um, and yeah, right now I'm working on a new book called, uh, uh, what is it called? I'm, I'm losing my memory <laughs> here. It's called uh, On Earth As It Is in Heaven, Social Christians and the Fight to End American Inequality. Um, so that one's not out yet, but uh, hope, hopefully it will be uh, before too long. Give me a couple of years and I'll have that. Uh, <laughs> you know, all, all my books are on Amazon. So if you just search Heath Carter on Amazon, you'll, uh, you'll come up with them. Awesome, man. Awesome. Well, uh, dude, we uh, certainly encourage our good listeners. Please do check out Heath's stuff. Um, awesome stuff. And I'm, uh, I don't know, like a chapter into Union Made, but it's super great. And um just play newsies in the background while you're reading it and it'll be it'll be the, the best way to spend an evening um but heath man thank you so much for joining us and for for slumming with us idiots it's been uh, it's been great really to have fun. you really fun thanks for having me on guys yeah absolutely brother all right we're gonna head to break see you guys on the other side Welcome back. Uh, that was Heath Carter, Dr. Heath Carter, and we uh, are kind of wrapping up. I, I think we said that we were going to have three episodes on this, but for the life of us, we can't think of what we want to do, where we want to take this conversation, because I think we all agree politics and religion is is messy. Unless Agreed? we want to have a beef between the only two doctors we've ever had on the episodes, Dr. Brian O'Neill and oh. Dr. Heath Carter. Should we have a doctor oh, beef? Man. Dr. Beef. Doctor B. Doctor B. What would they talk about? Their their fields are so far. Wait, because Brian's like what? Fish biology, aquatic biology, and yeah, he's fish biology, history and politics. It would be as if like Brian is a Darwin fish eating the Christian fish of the Brian O'Neill. <laughs> <laughs> oh, uh, not not to say you're inferior, Brian. I I believe in you. I believe in you. Flying spaghetti monster. Oh yeah. man. Okay. So I mean, any any last thoughts as we come Don't as we try me. to bring it back to Christian Christianity Tolerance. religion? Equality. Um no, here's <laughs> the bottom line, Tom. Bumper stickers aside, first of all, if you have a bumper sticker, you're an idiot. Secondly, <laughs> uh seriously, you're not convincing anyone. All you're doing is making the rest of us annoyed. Okay. Like, just get rid of it. Okay, moving along. Um 
no politics christianity it's messy man it's messy so listen i i think this would listen i i will i will finish this up with the most appropriate comment i can possibly think of this would be an ideal situation in a bar where the bartender would hear some insane conversation about politics and christianity and say last call all right friends that's the end of the episode we want to give our shout outs to of course the one the only janet o'neill thanks for being our number one fan we love you so much we also want to give a shout out to our friend dr heath carter find him on twitter buy his books just look keith carter up on amazon i'm telling you union made is great if you're like i'm not super scholarly i'm not super epic academic i'm telling you you know i'm an idiot i'm reading it right now it's really great he's an excellent writer we encourage you to listen to his stuff uh please send us a text 612-208-6258 we would love to interact with you find us on facebook instagram twitter you name it we're there pine glass preachers over and out bye-bye